Well, I'm glad I came this morning, aren't you? My, oh my. Let me invite your attention to um, Song of Solomon, chapter 8. Song of Solomon, chapter 8. This is the final message in our series through the book of Song of Solomon. And I want to say thank you for your support during this sermon series. I appreciate so much your affirmation. I have received more positive feedback on this series of messages than any I have done since I started preaching in 1983. And I am very, very grateful for that. It's meant a lot because it's been very difficult to preach through the Song of Solomon. Uh, every, almost every word has a person behind it that I have thought about and prayed for. And frankly, there can be with these subjects a lot of sorrow that arises, and that's been in my heart. Second, for those of you who are single, thank you for your patience. We've been preaching about marriage and uh, these related subjects, and I will address uh, some of those needs among singles at a later date. We have um, also, uh, you deserve thanks for uh, helping me learn some things through this series of messages. What we find in the Song of Solomon is that we find God taking marriage, which was created, in the garden, and all the issues, even the intimate issues related to it. And God has taken that and made that one of the two survivors of the fall of Adam and Eve into sin that I can think about. One is the image of God, and the second is marriage. Marriage is something of a remnant of the Garden of Eden. It survived the fall, and it is something that enters into this life after the fall of uh, into sin, sorrow, misery, and death that God gives the human race. And so we've learned that. It's not an unworthy issue. When we talk about marriage and all the issues related to it, we're not merely talking about practical things that humans enjoy or don't enjoy in some cases. When we talk about marriage, we're talking about something that is holy and that God designed. And I'm very grateful for that. Now, with that in mind, as we look at chapter 8 and finish chapter 8 this morning, I need to give you what may be to some of you a very startling statement. And that is, almost everything you have heard about love is wrong. Most likely, if you're the typical American. If what you have heard has been confined to the Bible, you're in good shape. But almost nothing that the average American has heard about love comes exclusively or even primarily from the Bible. Nearly all the literature, nearly all the conversations, nearly all of the music that reflects on these issues is grossly misguided and has been for a very, very long time. That is especially the case with what we're talking about this morning. Most equate love with a feeling. That really is not love. It's more romance. And I think that's an important issue, and we'll address that in a moment. But love is something that is primarily demonstrated in the death and resurrection of Christ, and that didn't feel very good. There's never been a crucifixion of anyone, especially our Savior, that felt good, that was very pleasing. 
to the person undergoing crucifixion. And yet when Jesus bled on the cross, Jesus was demonstrating real love. That's what He was doing. The Bible says God demonstrates His own love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The best way to understand love, then, I believe, is to understand it as a disposition of sacrifice that leads to sacrificial actions. And there may come a day when Bible translators in the future may feel compelled to retranslate the English text anytime the word love appears. And they may need to drop the word love because it's been so polluted in the American vocabulary and substitute for it sacrifice or some synonym to that. That's what we're looking at here in chapter 8, beginning in verse 5, that love consists of a sacrificial disposition and a sacrificial set of actions. And we find that in verse number 6 and 7. She says to Solomon, Set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is as strong as death, jealousy as cruel as the grave. I would translate zeal as tenacious as the grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it, the offer, would be utterly despised. Love, biblical love, is a sacrificial disposition that leads to a set of sacrificial actions. And what does that mean then for marriage? Well, one, love sacrifices to seal marriage's permanency. Now, I want to say real quickly at this point, uh, lest I be misunderstood, if you have ever suffered through a divorce, you are welcome here at Beach Haven. And if you are following the Lord, following a divorce, I am extremely proud of you. A lot of folks give up, and you haven't. And I'm very, very grateful for what you've done. We here at Beach Haven have at least 64 couples in our history that have celebrated their 50th anniversary. Others would have, but their spouses passed away before they could. But there are also others among us that have suffered through a divorce and yet have been married three and four decades, and some of them will reach their 50th anniversary. I don't know if you understand what a challenge that is at every level, but quite frankly, if you've ever suffered through that, you're still following Jesus, you're faithful to your marriage, you have my applause. And I want to say that to begin with because of chapter 8, verse 6. God is committed to exalting Jesus Christ, and that is a final, unalterable decision. He is not relenting, He's not bowing on that, and that commitment He has to exalting Jesus is something that flows into marriages. That is a model for marriage. He is final, He is permanent on that, and therefore marriages are to be permanent under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. She says, set me as a seal upon your heart. A seal is a seal. It is settled. No one breaks it. No one opens it. It's to be above his heart. It's to be public uh, on his arm because love is as strong as death. That's why defining love as merely an emotion is a silly thing to do. I don't know about your emotions, but mine change with my diet. Mine change with the time of the day. 
Uh, mine change when I eat onions. I mean, that's how ephemeral some of those feelings can be. Now, they can be important, and I'll address that in just a moment. But love is as strong as death. And then translators have translated the next phrase variously. Um, there is, biblically, a good kind of jealousy. Much of the time it's not good, but God is jealous for Israel. He's jealous for His church. It's entirely appropriate when a marriage is threatened by an outside influence for one partner to become jealous or uh, of, of the uh, other spouse and not allow others to intrude upon that. There is, of course, an unreasonable and sinful jealousy. I understand that. But in the English language, it might be better to translate, in this context, jealousy as zeal. Zeal for the marriage is as cruel, and that, that is an okay translation there, but in the English it might be better to translate it tenacious. So zeal for marriage is to be as tenacious as a grave. When graves receive their contents, they don't give them up quickly. Only the resurrection of Jesus Christ when He returns will give up what is found in a grave. And the same is true when it comes to zeal for a marriage. It is to be that tenacious as tenacious for a grave. Its flames are flames of fire, a most vehement flame, so it burns any obstacle in its way. And that, ladies and gentlemen, happens to be the biblical standard and the Christian standard for marriage. Now that might be a stunning revelation to much outside the world, but for those who know the cross of Jesus Christ, it is something indeed that we will cherish. God created marriage as one man, one woman for life. Why is that? Well, there are many reasons. One, God loves us, and He wants us to avoid the heartache of splitting in a marriage. That's why it's terribly inappropriate to become involved sexually. Before marriage, your souls are wedded together, and at a breakup, it's like it's as painful as a divorce. God loves us, and He's looking out for us, but also faithfulness. God's faithful even in hard times. And we work through difficulties in marriages and we don't split up. Now, I understand I'm talking about the normal difficulties. If you are in an abusive relationship, God doesn't expect you to stay in the abuse. I'm not suggesting divorce at that point, but I am saying love does not mean you stay there and you get yourself beat on. That's, that's not Christian either. Uh, also in faithfulness to the vows, that, that's another issue. And God doesn't, I believe, expect you to put up with that as well. If you're abandoned, then there's not much you can do about that. But when it comes to the normal challenges, the normal challenges of marriage, we remain faithful. And then we have, as parents, married to a husband or wife, a responsibility to cultivate trust in our children, so that one day they'll transfer that to Jesus Christ wherever there is a divorce following intense acrimony among children. It makes it very difficult for them to trust God, our research shows. So if your marriage is in trouble, sacrifice whatever you've got to sacrifice to strengthen it. If it is within your power to do, and I understand it not always is, you will want to avoid divorce at all costs. Now, I come from the land where we understand things like this. In fact, our legend and lore is rooted in it. Uh, you remember the Alamo, don't you? Uh, some of you may have been spectators, I realize. But the, uh, on, that day in, on that day, about 250 Texans stood against uh, the estimates ranged from 1,500 to 6,000 in the Mexican army. Now, in reality, it was probably 25 Texans against 6 million of the Mexican army. 
is what I tend to think. But they stood, and, and they didn't have many reinforcements. About a hundred showed up. But the reason they're celebrated so much is that they determined they were going to die instead of surrender because they believed in something. And so they essentially announced to the Mexican army, uh, if you want us to stop fighting, you'll have to kill us first. And in good marriages that survive, that is the heart and the spirit and the sentiment that is behind it. I've drawn the line. I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying. Love sacrifices to seal marriage's permanency. But there's a second thing. Love also sacrifices to seal marriage's priority. If you've just recently come to know Christ as Lord and Savior, you, if you haven't discovered already, Jesus Christ is constantly pursuing you to improve the relationship. Um, he found you in a certain condition, and I don't know if they told you this when you came to the Lord, but He's determined not to leave you in that shape. He is going to change you, and He's going to press, and He's going to come after you. In fact, if you grow careless, He will persecute you into anxiety to make you change. He will relentlessly, constantly come towards you to move you, to reshape you, to disturb you. It may be through a message. It may be through Bible study, a prayer time. It may be through a thought. It may be through a song you hear on the radio. It may be through the voice of another Christian person. It may come from a million different directions, but he's always laboring to improve your walk with him. That transfers into marriage as well, and we find that in verse 7. Many waters cannot quench love. It's like love is a flame. It can't turn off the lights, but um, it cannot quench love. And it can bring them back on again. Nor can the floods drown it. Now, this is a remarkable thing. Love is depicted here at the end of verse 6, beginning of verse 7, the kind of love that we're talking about here as a flame, and even unrelenting waters cannot quench this flame, and floods cannot drown it. And then, it imagines a case here where a man is exchanging all he has for love, and it says, if a man were to give all for love, all the wealth of his house, that offer would be utterly despised. In other words, there's no one with enough wealth in his or her home to purchase this kind of love, this permanency, this, this priority. It would be utterly despised. Other than a walk with Jesus Christ, the most important relationship married persons have is with one another. It is the highest priority in a married couple's life. The marriage ceremony then does not represent subtraction. It represents addition. In other words, there's a reason why you two were interested in one another. There's a reason why with each step and each meeting you felt more comfortable moving to the next step that eventually led to engagement and eventually to marriage. And that was essentially what we call here in the United States a dating life. And that's not to denigrate courting. I think there's an awful lot of value in that. That, that, uh, that is a subject for another time. But when you are married, you do not subtract dating from your relationship. You add marriage to what you already have. It is very important then for spouses to continue the romantic elements of the relationship. My wife called this early in our marriage the silly, goosey, crazy, in love feeling. 
It's very fragile, though. It's very fragile. It's vulnerable to sickness. It's vulnerable to bank accounts. It's vulnerable to words. It's vulnerable to tones. It's vulnerable to body language. And it's vulnerable to in-laws in so many ways. It really is. But it is something that is worth pursuing. It is something worth guarding. And it is something worth maintaining. Love is to be permanent, firm, and a rock. The romantic, silly, goosey, crazy in love, sentiment in marriage, however, is far more fragile. And I want to urge you, as a married couple, never, ever stop pursuing it. Do all you can to guard it. It it will come and go. But if you discover and notice it's gone, go get it back. And, And there are a number of reasons why. You made vows to cherish one another, and some of that is involved. You want to satisfy your spouse. That is involved. And then you want marriage to be appealing to children. And, and I hate to tell you this, if you're not very much in tune with uh, this particular young generation, for many, marriage is not appealing. They've never seen a good one. Show them a good one. Show them a good one. You show them a good one, they will better understand the Lord Jesus Christ and be able to follow Him. And so coming to Him will be a natural transfer of trust from parents to Him because they've seen that in a marriage. Well, what do I do? I mean, frankly, it's kind of the same old, same old that it's always been, and we're kind of bored with each other. Well, let me ask you, when you have the silly, goosey, crazy in love, in fact, I'm feeling kind of lonely here. I don't like saying that all by myself. Would you look at your neighbor and say, you need the silly, goosey, crazy in love feeling? Would you do that real quickly, please? Thank you. Okay, you people are having entirely too much fun at this. Let me ask you, when you did have that, what did you do? We'll go do it again. It's really not difficult. This is the kind of thing that should be revived according to verse 7. So love sacrifices to seal marriage's permanency and priority. But there's a third thing. Love sacrifices to seal marriage's integrity. There are many that enter into marriage expecting a spouse to complete them. I hope if you're single you'll not do that. Only God can complete another person, and fiancés are not good candidates. I I, I need, on occasion, to remind people there's no vacancy in the Trinity. God's not taking applications. And as lovely as your fiancé happens to be and and your spouse today, no spouse and no fiancé qualify as a member of the Trinity. Only Christ can thoroughly complete someone. There's an awful lot of joy that comes from marriage. I don't want to mislead you. But to expect someone, a person, to complete an incomplete person just is not reasonable. No human can do that. In fact, I will tell you, your biggest disappointments in life will come from your spouse. And that's not unusual. Of course, your greatest joys will too. Your greatest wounds will come from your spouse. More than half the time, they don't intend to be that way, but that's what happens. And so if you've been disappointed in your spouse, if you've been wounded, you know, and I'm talking about the normal areas of life, 
normal wounds, normal disappointments, then you're married. That's what comes with it. That, that's a part of it. Now, there's an awful lot of joy, an awful lot of satisfaction that comes as well, but you've got to understand it's not reasonable to expect another person to complete another person. Because of disappointment and wounds, many are tempted to compromise their integrity and become vulnerable to temptation. Verses 8 through 14 is how the text addresses this. It addresses integrity. There's integrity in family in verses 8 and 9. Uh, the references of verse 8 are not sexual. They're more age-oriented. But the whole point here is that her brothers are heads of the household. Apparently the father has died. And so they are guarding uh, the integrity of their sisters. Not the last time brothers interfered in the dating relationship, but that's what we've got here. What they are doing, though, here in the text is that they are involving older people in their walk with one another. You know, one of the sweetest things that could ever happen to a young couple would be for an older couple like you to come alongside and be friends with them and to listen, counsel, and pray and to be an encouragement to them every step of the way. And that's what you find in verses 8 and 9. They've got integrity in family then. Then they've got integrity in vows in verse number uh, verse number 10. There's a vow that's made and they fulfill it with the intimate areas of marriage. Then there's integrity in morals in verses 11 and verse 12. Uh, they are faithful to one another. And, and then there's uh, integrity in their emotions, verses 13 and 14. They are as thrilled in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 8 as they were back in chapter 1. The emotion persists. They have integrity there. They have vowed to cherish one another, and they do so. And we find them at the very end of this book still zealous for one another. Robert Murray McShane, the Scottish pastor, used to pray, Lord, make me as holy as a saved sinner can be. And he used to say, the greatest thing that my people, my parish need for me is my holiness. I'd say that's true in marriage as well. Marriage is a matter of holiness and righteousness before God. It's not a secular thing. That's why we think about marriage as we do. That's why we bless some marriages, we can't others. That's why we would involve ourselves in some and not others. Because God is present and He is to be exalted in them all. Marriage then is an issue of holiness and righteousness. And God gives power and expectation for holiness in worship, in, in prayer, and in Bible study, in moral conduct. But He also does it in marriage. Now, I have lived long enough to see some wild changes in American expectations and culture. I believe we're in an Isaiah 5.20 day when what is dark is called light, what's light is called dark. Somehow this past week among the news media, we got the blame for what happened in Orlando. I don't know, are you confused? I sure am. But this is an Isaiah 5.20 day where what is sweet is sour and what's sour is sweet. And right now, it is scorn to be unfaithful to your marriage vows in the sexual area. But I have been around long enough to see every barrier removed and fallen, decimated, destroyed, and condemned that God has given to the human race. And I expect one day that this will fall too. 
And so we will find it necessary at some point or another to sacrifice something to maintain integrity in marriage. I read recently of a pastor and his wife being real honest and transparent about their own marriage. And he tells of the day when he was really upset with her and just kept firing words at her. And he said, he admitted, I was trying to hurt her and wound her, and I told her so. I was in the kitchen, he said, and she was around the corner, and I kept launching these missiles at her. And finally, she rounded the corner, having got up from the other room, and she stood up and looked at me, and I braced myself. And then she came to me, she grabbed me by the lapels, pulled me close, and sobbing said, I don't know who hurt you, but I'm not going anywhere. And that compassion and love melted his heart, and he said, I need to get some help. And he did. Her faithfulness is what is called for in this day. Listen to me. Sweet people, there will come a time when your marriage will get difficult, and it may last a long time. That's okay. It happens. At that point, you be faithful. Get help if you need it. And the faithfulness this young pastor's wife displayed is the kind of faithfulness God displays in His very own Son, the Lord Jesus. He approaches you and gently grabs you by the lapel and pulls you close. And He says, I know what's happened to you. And I'm not going anywhere. Jesus is tenderly calling today calling today, calling today. Relentlessly, persistently, He moves on your heart to come and embrace Him. And once you have the love of God in Jesus Christ, He sheds it abroad in your heart, and then you've got what you need to love another sinner. And you know, that's the only choice we have. The only people we can marry in all the world are sinners. We don't have another choice. Therefore, the kind of faithfulness that flows from the love of God is the most urgent need of the hour. And Christ is calling you to receive that love today. Would you quickly stand with me, please? Lord God, I want to thank you that in Jesus Christ, you've given us a solid place to stand. Thank you that you promise you will never leave nor forsake us. Thank you that you have given us some certainties and promises. Oftentimes what appears to be thin air in our view is actually solid ground. And we thank you that's real in Jesus Christ and you make it that way. I want to pray, O oh God, that you would help us to be the kind of people who can say to one another, especially in marriage and family, the kind of certain things that you yourself say about the future. Not, I will try to be faithful, 
but I will. Not I will try to make you a priority, but I will. Not this thing's going to be permanent, and we're simply going to try, but for sure, this is going to be permanent. God, give us that kind of grace by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Lord, represented in these topics today is a lot of joy, but God, there's a lot of sorrow too. And I pray that dear friends would be able to cast that upon you. Move forward in the power of the Holy Spirit. Magnify Christ anyway. Now we're going to sing a song. And as we do, please hear the Lord's invitation for you to come to know His love. There is no sin, no failure, no embarrassment you've brought upon yourself or your family that is large enough to keep you from Jesus Christ. He will not recoil or ignore you. Call to me in the day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. That is His word for you today. Would you come give your heart and life to Christ and say yes to Him? We'll have staff here in the front. They'll be glad to talk with you and to help you with your spiritual need. I'm going to finish my prayer, and we're going to ask you to come. Lord, we bless you for hearing us. We pray that you would move by the power of the Holy Spirit in our time now. And I pray that every friend here today would know the love of God in Jesus Christ. In His name we pray. Amen. You come.